The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Ho, ho, ho. Green giant. Uh, <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. And this is our letters episode where we talk about frozen vegetable products. And old like. commercial jingles of yore. Mm. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief. <laughs> it is to be back with you because this is your podcast. That's right. This is where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. You write us emails. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And every week we try to read as many as we can while giving a fair amount of time to whatever you say. Ask us questions. Ask us for recommendations. Ask us for lists of things. Ask us what our middle name is. Here's a hint. It's Brewster. Is it Brewster? It is, actually. Just it right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, ask us whatever. We're, we're, we're pretty open books. We can't get to every email, but we sure as heck like to try. So let's dive right in as quickly and as soon as we can. Whitney. Yes? What's her first email? Here's a letter from Jay Curty. Hi. Hello, Jay. Uh, dear Bibbs, and welcome to <laughs> welcome to the Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> it's Kevin. Heard yeah, that one before. Um, uh, for Silly, if your phone's ringtone and text tone were stuck at full volume and could not be put on silent or vibrate, what movie scene would you use as your ringtone? And what movie sound effect or line of dialogue would you like to choose as your text tone? Ooh. Okay, okay. So we're looking at, so we're looking at two different ones, one for text and one for dialogue. What one one for text and one for uh, yeah, uh, like voice. One one's your text yeah. noise, I guess, and one is your ring noise. Uh Okay, for voice calls. <laughs> okay. Hello. My name is Warner Brandis. <laughs> Warner Brandis. <laughs> my voice what? is my passport. Mm. Verify me. Did you want Stephen Tobolowski's voice? Yeah, I want, but I want the recorded version from the little tape. If you ever, if you know what we're talking about, it's from the movie Sneakers. Sneakers is a really, really, really great thriller from the early '90s, and it has one of the best casts ever assembled. It is a it is a spy slash heist slash computer thriller starring Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, Dan Aykroyd, River Phoenix, Ben Kingsley. David Strathairn and Mary McDonnell mm. and, and also Stephen Tobolowsky and boy, is that a cool cast and it's really clever <laughs> and it's really fun. And there's this one bit where they have to uh, get Stephen Tobolowsky's voice saying a particular series of words in order to break into his uh, high tech security office. And so they have to get him individually saying all of these words and then cut them together and the particular way that he says them has always stuck in my head forever. <laughs> so I feel like that would be a good, uh, mm. you've, you, someone's calling you on the phone. My voice is my passport. Verify me. Okay. At least that part. Maybe the whole thing Maybe. is too much. What about you for voice? Yeah, for like, for like a voice call. I, yeah. if, if it's like a ringtone, mm. I'd want like 
the the mechanical drone in the background of the movie Eraserhead. Just my 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 telephone just goes. Wouldn't that make you dread every phone call? Absolutely. I feel like maybe we're coming at this from different angles. I'm excited to talk to you. But somebody needs a passport to talk to you. So my, no, every, my voice is my no. They're asking me. My voice is my passport. Verify me. Oh, so you are gets, verified. You verified. Yeah. Whoever's calling you. Yeah. And I assume I'm just going to call everyone Warner. Hi, Warner. How you doing? Uh, as for like a text tone, I mean, yeah. a, a Wilhelm scream is too easy. Oh, wait. Um, well, it's got to be short for a text. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think beep. of like, you know what? There, there's a, a particular sound effect that they used in a lot of Warner Brothers cartoons of a body yeah. falling down. Okay, yeah. Um, I, I'm sure you have it in your head already, just me mentioning it. Yeah. That body falling down sound effect that you'd hear in Bugs Bunny cartoons. Speaking of cartoons, my, my first idea, and I think I would, this would drive me up the wall mm-hmm. way too fast, so I don't think I'd use it. But my first thought was uh, Goofy's yell when he falls from a great height. Oh, you hoo hoo yeah. yeah. <laughs> Incredible, incredible vocal performance. What a what a treat. Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, but keeping it on to cartoons, I'm going to go with the Roadrunner. Meep, okay. Meep. Just, just to meet me. Me, me. Okay. Yeah. Oh, once, but then we'll loop it. I <laughs> cute Cheap. reference. Cheap I, uh, jerks. I uh, actually did uh, when I figured out how to do this with one of my like it was one of my very first mobile phones, which I got very late in life, mm. and uh, I recorded something off of a cartoon and had that that was my uh, text noise. Mm. It was from uh, the cartoon Two More Eggs, which was made by the Homestar Runner people. I don't you they, know them better. They than did I a series. The Homestar Runner people did a series of cartoons for Disney. Uh, for, oh. for Disney XD, like which was their their, <laughs> their extreme. Their, uh, it, it was like yeah, like their sort of vaguely more adolescent uh, channel. It was uh, a channel for like, Disney Plus. Yeah, and they had stuff like that. That's where you could get stuff like Gravity Falls or Star Wars Rebels yeah, or Star in the Force of Stuff stuff for junior high school. It's good stuff actually. There's a lot of those shows were great. But uh, the Homestar Runner people had this show with Disney called Two More Eggs, and one of their characters was this living blob of some sort of mysterious food product called Hot Dip. That sounds awful. And, and yeah, then there's you know, this big, like, f- fleshy blob. It looks like silly putty and or sunglasses. And whenever it, like, it could appear out of nowhere, whenever you said, I'm having trouble, and Hot Dip would appear and say, Dipow! And uh, so for the longest time, at full volume, my telephone would say, Dipow! And people were freaking out. Like, I left it at work, and all of my coworkers hated it. Oh, my God. Do you have any, like, uh, novelty ringtones on your phone right now? No, I don't know how it works. You don't know how to do that anymore? No, okay. I don't. I, the only one I have... Look, I'm, I'm, I, I'm 112. I don't no, know. No, it's fine. I had the uh, I had the mus- I had the theme song from the Spaghetti Western Run Man Run as mm. my uh, phone call noise and also my uh, alarm noise uh-huh. on an old phone. But currently, um, my... It's my ringtone, but I always keep my phone on vibrate. But it's uh, mostly I hear it as the noise. It's from my like alarm in the morning. Mm. Um, I have the uh, MST3K music for when they go to commercials. Okay. What's the theme song? But it's actually, but it's not. It's kind of like a breakdown of it. It's not like the actual theme song. It's it's like the one you would do like when it would cut to the outside of. Gizmonic, uh, uh, Gizmonics Institute. Yeah, Gizmonics Institute. I almost said university. I was like, that's not quite right. Yeah. Anyway, um, but that's, uh, that, right. that's a fun question. So right. thank you for uh, that. 
And uh, there's a second question to okay. this letter. <laughs> What's that? Uh, for serious, I hear people talk about how some films gain immense richness and depth as they, the people, get older and their perspectives grow and change with their maturity, insight, yeah. wisdom, etc. You call yourselves old guys frequently. Yes. Did. I just did. Uh, and, and though I don't think you're really that old i'm curious if you have had this experience and with what films uh, i am a young dude in my early 20s and only recently have i started watching films of all genres and all eras the classics and broadening up from just the blockbuster extravaganzas which define my love of movies in my childhood i have a long exciting movie watching road ahead of me and i'm curious if there are films you think are better to watch when you are younger that i should pr- perhaps prioritize getting around to first or conversely films to wait longer before watching Personally, I'm not sure the, uh, this idea has merit because people's experiences and tastes are so unique, but I wanted to ask and get your takes on it anyway. It, it is so hard to actually answer the question, I'm new on film, what should I watch, due to the magnitude of film's history. Of course. Uh, so I wanted to try to apply an additional lens through which to view the issue. Maybe the question should be, what movies most strongly affected you as young, a young person, mm. or do you wish you had seen when you were younger? Uh, you two really pushed me to re- consider my personal biases about films and the human stories reflected in them. And that can be valuable to me. Your perspectives make me better. Thank you for the good work you do, Jay Curdy. Uh, well, that, that's very sweet that's of you to say. Yeah. And that means a lot to me, actually. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. You know, we we, we like what we do, but I, I'm sure everyone, regardless of their job, at some point has to ask themselves, is, is this worth it? Are we doing anything useful? And just to hear something like that is actually mm. incredibly encouraging. And you just you just bought me like an extra year of being a film critic. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that's it. Whenever I would have normally give up, I'm going to do a whole another year just because of that email. So thanks mm. for that. Um, that's that's a that's a big question. I got phrased a couple of different ways, but let's let's try to break it down here. So we're talking about a very and this is very real. Mm. Uh, there are movies that affect us differently when we're at different stages in our lives. Mm-hmm. Perhaps because we've gained enough experience to finally appreciate them from another level. Uh, or because uh, we realize that previously we were immature. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think it's interesting. Personally, I don't think there are movies you should see at a certain time in your life. I think you should see all movies all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be movies that you'll appreciate more as time goes on. There also may be movies you'll appreciate less. Yeah. Uh, case in point, uh, it's, the, it's the holiday season. I'll talk about it. Home Alone is a movie <laughs> I loved as a kid. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Home Alone is a very uh, sweet, well-intentioned movie about the childhood fantasy of having the whole house to yourself. About not being parentally supervised, about being able to eat whatever you want and Mm -hmm. run around the house and make a mess and no one's there to stop you. And that's a very normal childlike fantasy. As a child, you know, usually your life is very rigidly uh, uh, structured. Mm. You do what your parents say. You go to school. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. Yeah, you get a lot of rules. So being able to break all those rules and to also have the fantasy in there that you will be fine. You're not going to kill yourself. You're not, not, not going to burn be, down the uh, house. Not you know? only will you be fine, but your independence uh, offers you avenues for heroism. Yes, because he fights off bad guys. Exactly. Mm. This is a that's a great movie for kids. Mm. I like that movie as a kid, and I and maintain that as that if I showed that movie to kids now, they would probably like most of it. Parts mm. of it might not have aged well. Like, hey, why didn't it use a cell phone? We didn't have those. Eh. Like that kind of thing. But as an adult. I watch that movie differently. Mm. And a lot of people I know who are my age are still very much watching it from the perspective that they watched it at when they were young. Mm. And I suspect a part of that is because a lot of people watch it like every year for Christmas. 
I took a break from Home Alone for probably about 10 years. And when I came back to it, I was horrified. Well, about what a, a sociopath this kid is. Well, how, that uh, too. But... More, more so in the in Home Alone Part 2. But uh... I look at it from a parent's perspective in a way. Like, oh my God, why isn't anyone doing anything? Mm. Like, this is this is horrible. All these people at the store are noticing yeah. that this, un, this, this child is unattended and just... No one's taking his plight seriously, and the police the, aren't uh, checking in on the way that they should. And at the same time, this was a film that was written by an adult, yeah. and was made by adults. And mm-hmm. it wasn't this. It, it's a kid fantasy, but it does come from something even adults understand. Yeah. So I think even though we're more sharply aware of the irresponsibility of something like Home Alone. I just, there's still probably parts of every adult who understands where this kind of story is coming from. Here's what it boils down to for me. Hmm. If you've ever lived in an apartment by yourself, you've lived home alone. You just haven't <laughs> beat up Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, hmm. I hope. Like other like I've I've lived on my own and I've eaten all the like as soon as you get a place to yourself. You don't have roommates anymore. I don't care if it's you know a studio apartment or whatever you got. Once you have the whole place to yourself, and it's your environment, and you can do whatever you want with it, and you don't have to clean if you don't want to, and you can eat nothing but Kraft mac and cheese if you want to, and then a week later you realize that was a terrible idea and I need structure. Like, <laughs> I, I've grown up a bit, and the fantasy of Home Alone isn't my fantasy anymore. But so yeah. I don't, so well, I can appreciate it. It's not an unentertaining movie. I don't love it anymore. Yeah. It's a movie for, I it's think, like, younger people or people who are more in tune with their younger mindset. Yeah, go-karts aren't as fun when you drive. Yeah. Uh, that, that's yeah, Autopia is only a ride at Disneyland for kids. You never see an adult excited to go on that by themselves. Uh, well, I mean, Disney is a. There's a lot of adult Disney fans who do have a, a like season passes and do get a thrill. Well, yeah, but you don't always go to Autopia. Autopia there's, but yeah. yeah, but Disneyland like, has lots of stuff for all ages. I just yeah. feel like there's some stuff. That's specifically for it would be like if there was a Disneyland now, uh, thing that's like you like have an office job. Mm. That might be fun if you're a kid, but if you have an office job, you're not going to do that. So yeah, driving the, uh, isn't necessarily the coolest thing in the world. But uh, all that's a little bit off topic. I think uh, what Sorry, uh, real fast. Bumper cars. That's an adult fantasy. <laughs> you can hit anything and it doesn't matter. Into stuff, yeah, yeah, that's an adult fantasy. Yeah. Merely driving is not. Uh the idea that um, there are certain kinds of films for certain ages, I think, is a salient one. Like, yeah. I, I wouldn't expect uh, somebody in their early 20s to hunker down with a lot of, like, say, Mike Lee movies. Or, I did. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, not I, a lot of Mike I, Lee movies. I did as well, he wasn't Mike's I, particular I think, jam, uh, but I liked Topsy Turvy at the mm, time. I liked Secrets and Lies. I, I think there are a lot of... Uh, but the dramas depicted in something in a lot of Mike Lee's films are things that only adults would understand. Well, uh, innately understand. You might, exactly. be, you might get the gist, but you're not going to feel them. Uh, not that I would tell somebody in their 20s not to watch Mike Lee movies. No. Uh, but at the same time, there are certain films that you need to see younger in order to kind of let them get under your skin. Yeah. Uh, Beatles movies. Yeah. Uh, I, I really wish I had seen Repo Man when I was 18. I didn't see that until I was 30, and I felt like I missed out. Yeah. Because there's a, a certain kind of crazy punk rock rebellion in that movie that I could have used and wielded earlier in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't, you can't be punk when you're 30. You just die. Yeah. Uh, um, I, you and I have talked before about uh, the notion of the gateway movie. Yeah, that, that is to say, uh, 
the kind of film that you can show to a young person, uh, usually in our minds, it's a, a teenager mm-hmm. uh, who is broaden their horizons. Yeah, who yeah. is not yet into classic film, but you know we don't want to shove them headlong into something like Vertigo. Yeah, something uh, that might be a little opaque. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, something that actually does have a little bit more of a like a sensationalist angle, or feels a little bit more pop, while actually being uh, richer than maybe perhaps some of your uh, blockbuster entertainments that the the listener was writing about yeah there's yeah uh and there's some that, that i always fall back on but that's sort of like an ever-changing list these gateway films sure. uh, and it depends on the person too you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta take into account what their sensibilities are in the first place exactly uh i, I would like to encourage here's my general philosophy when it comes to trying to broaden your horizons uh take the path of most resistance <laughs> Like, uh, sure, watch the films that kind of seem interesting to you. It's like, oh, here's something that's really obscure that has, like, some really bizarre premise that sounds really interesting to me. Definitely watch that. But if you pick something up and it seems like it's it, like it's a country uh, you, that you've never seen a movie from, or it's a filmmaker you've never heard of, or it seems like this big sprawling topic that you might not be interested in, go to that one. Mm-hmm. Challenge, like, deliberately challenge yourself, because I find that... The difficult pleasure is often going to be far more rewarding than the simple pleasure. Here's 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 something I encourage people to consider, especially when they're young and they're starting to get into less, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Less accessible art. Because there's a lot of art. Listen, if especially if you're listening to this in, and you're in America, there's a lot of art that is catered to what we consider American sensibilities and mm. to particular demographics in America so that uh, you can just watch something like a Star War mm. or a Marvel and you will just see like, ah, this is, I, I don't need to think of anything. There mm. might be something fun and subversive in here. Maybe it's ex- exceptionally good, but this is all designed to appeal to what I already like. Yeah. So I'm not really being challenged it's, it's, very much. Maybe more some more than others, but it's supposed to be accessible. If you're watching stuff that isn't designed to be accessible to you, mm. maybe it's from another culture, maybe it's from another decade, maybe it tells a story in a more abstract way. I think it's more important to ask yourself if 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 you're not if it's not working for you, mm. ask yourself: Is it because it's not good? Or is it because I'm not on the right wavelength to tell if it's good or not? Yeah. And if it feels like this, this is clearly assured. This is clearly intentional. Someone did this on purpose because they thought it worked and they seem to be getting at something that might be the perfect opportunity to do supplemental reading. Yeah. yeah. You know, as so like you're watching something that might be a little impenetrable if you're new to certain types of cinema. Let's say you're watching something like, uh, Ingmar Bergman's Persona, mm. uh, which is about uh, two women alone on an island. One is a nurse, and the other—I forget—is she an actress? She's an oh, she's an actress, and she's um, she's gone mute on stage. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember exactly what her ailment was. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's all about uh, they spend so much time together, and the nurse ends up confiding so much in this woman who can't really contribute anything in return that they're they start becoming indivisible and they yeah. start sort of merging together in a theory and like in sort of an abstract way. And then the movie starts kind of literalizing that in a way. And it's hard to tell 
how much of it is real, how much of it is imagined, how much of it is a metaphor. And mm. that's not, the kind not, of, not helped by the fact that we see shots of like Bergman and the photographer in the film, yeah. like filming the movie as it's going. It's not a movie that hands everything to you on a platter the way that we expect most movies to do. And so if you watch that movie and you, no one introduced it to you and gave you, here are some things to look at and here's mm-hmm. a good way in to this narrative if you're not familiar with it. And like you watch that movie and you go, I, I didn't get any of that perfectly reasonable mm. who could expect you to do that it's like just hey you just you just learned how to read boom finnegan's wake like just like <laughs> it's, a, it's a big step and that's not right. because finnegan's wake is bad it's because you weren't ready for that yet so I, you look, do a I'm, little reading you watch a watch a couple of like I mean, tcm intros or something like that and maybe they'll connect you to that or maybe you come back to it after you've seen some other things that are a little little bit more accessible to mm-hmm. you and then you're ready for something like persona and you can yeah. you're still allowed to dislike it but you should at least be able to enjoy mm-hmm. it or not enjoy it on its own terms rather than i don't get it yeah. If if you expose yourself to it and you hate it or you don't get it, then that's uh, something you get to revisit in a decade. Yeah, um, and that's I, and it's valid if you don't. But like, yeah, it might be worth revisiting if people keep telling you mm-hmm. it's good. I do that all the time. Mm-hmm. I revisit movies that I didn't understand or didn't appreciate, and I watch them again. And sometimes I still think they suck. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm like, oh, that was pretty. That was pretty good. What the hell was yeah, my, my problem uh, before? I was my way with Remains of the Day. Oh, okay. I saw yeah, Remains yeah. of the Day when I was a kid, when I was in like high school when it came out. And it's, like it's 93 a, of around Yeah, I guess, early probably, 90s, I guess yeah. it might have been in junior high at the time. But um, Remains of the Day is this really incredible but very reserved story starring Anthony Hopkins as a butler for a British aristocrat uh, shortly before World War II. And the um, one of the other uh, servants in the house, like the woman in charge of like the maids or something, is uh, played by Emma Thompson. And it's all about the things that they don't say to each other. And the things that they don't say to each other mirror the things that aren't being said in the house as Anthony Hopkins sort of goes along with and doesn't question the fact that the aristocrat he's working for is becoming a Nazi sympathizer right in front of his eyes. Mm. Uh, That is something that I was not ready for when I saw it, like when it came out on home video the first time. Yeah. Just didn't understand the context, didn't appreciate slow-moving movies. And then I watched it again in college, and I was riveted. <laughs> it's such incredible filmmaking. So, yeah, sometimes just patience, I guess, mm. as well. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of any movies. You, I, mean, uh, I think, honestly, what it boils down to is you should be always, and this is for me. And if you're listening to our podcast, you probably like movies. I think you should always be watching movies. And I don't <laughs> well, think... Yeah, watch, just watch, yeah. watch a bunch. Watch, yeah. But the important thing is watch a variety. Yeah, and you never know what's going to strike you. And there might be a movie that people think you're not ready for, and it's going to be exactly your gateway. Mm. It's going to be exactly what you needed. It's going to totally inflame your senses, and you're going to love it. Um, and, or, or vice versa. And then you just revisit, keep revisiting things down the road if they interest you, or even if they like completely turned you off. There's a couple, like, I, I've been meaning to revisit a movie I detested when it mm. came out, uh, Sucker Punch. Okay. I don't know why. I've just had this, like, you know, I feel like I should watch Sucker Punch again. I'm curious how it's aged. All right. I'm curious how it's aged. Am I going to be more appreciate what Zack Snyder was going through now that the conversation about some of the topics in the film is a little different? Or am I still going to think it's incredibly misguided? Yeah. Maybe, who knows? Mm. I, I, I need to, I've decided to watch it, and I never saw the director's cut, so I'll probably watch that again sometime right. this year. So there you go. Sucker Punch. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I revisited Birds of Prey. You know, because oh, I, you did? I didn't, didn't get on its wavelength the first time. Did you like it anymore? Uh, no. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> still, still not on its wavelength. I'm sorry. Oh, I liked it so much. And, and 
a lot of the circumstances, maybe the first time I watched it was I saw it very late at night. I was yeah. very tired. So I was watching it again, realizing I had completely forgotten about like 60% of the movie. Oh, wow. It's like, I, I didn't remember the opening. I didn't remember wow. some of the fight scenes. I didn't remember like the order of did, the events. Is there anything you liked better or was mm-hmm. it just all the same? Well, it, it's, it's just, it feels really kind of shabby and not an exciting kind of way. Oh. And yeah, feels mm-hmm. like, like it, it needs to be way tightened up. It's just sort of this big sprawling thing. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I gave it a second. I, I gave it a, a second chance, and I'm grateful to was, you for yeah. that because you said you would, and you you, mm. you didn't have to. I would have forgiven you, but like, I'm, <laughs> I'm really glad to. Yeah. I did that for um, a War for the Planet of the Apes. Okay, because uh, I saw that with similar circumstances. I saw that at midnight screening. Couldn't mm. get to like a press screening for it. I saw it really late at night, and I know I was sleeping. <laughs> and I didn't care for it and so I re- finally revisited it when we did a big episode cut like a year or two ago about all the Planet of the Apes movies no that movie sucks <laughs> incredible visual effects no one's denying the visual effects oh, yeah. they're astounding but that movie is just grim for its own sake I know it has a grim story to tell mm. but it's just wallowing in its own grimness mm. and it uses so much shorthand that it just cribs from other similar movies and it never feels like it's its own thing. Yeah. And it, I found it really, really frustrating because I thought Rise was great and I thought Dawn was good. It wasn't my favorite, but... I, I like I, Dawn far better than Rise. But yeah, yeah, but fair enough. I think they're both good mm. movies and War just doesn't work, I think. Um, so anyway, you, you never know. Mm. So you keep, you keep trying. Yeah. If it's worth trying, you keep trying. And fortunately, we do all these podcasts, and it gives us an excuse every once in a while to revisit things we might not otherwise have had the time for. Or just continue to explore, because we yeah. have our streaming club. All right, we should move on. Uh, this uh, Here's a letter from Louise. Thank you for writing, by the way. Thank, oh, thank you for writing. Uh, here's a letter from Louise. Hello, Louise. Uh, Hi. Hello to, uh, here's Rockmeister McCool. I believe that's in uh, Arabic? I don't know. Uh, that I don't know. Um, that's that's really cool. Uh, hello, I was listening to an old episode of Cancel Too Soon. You did with Drew McWeenie. Oh, for, uh, uh, for I, th- uh, I think it was Police Squad. Squad. It yeah. was Police Squad. Yeah. And something you mentioned in passing has prompted me to ask: Are you all still mad at Last Action Hero? <laughs> Thanks for your time <laughs> and helping me get through this god awful year, Louise. Uh, Last Action. I can't remember what we said about Last Action Hero. Well, at the I remember time. your beef with Last Action Hero was. Uh, it didn't take full advantage of an element it had introduced in that the uh, the premise of the movie is a boy has a magical movie ticket. Uh-huh. He goes to see a movie by himself in a theater and the magical ticket sucks him into the events of the film. And, and it, it turns t- out it also works the other way. It can pull people out of movies right. too. Yeah. Uh, and the joke of the movie is uh, when you're living inside an action movie, the rules of physics are a lot different. And yeah. everything you see is a cliche in an action movie is just the way the world is constructed. Yeah, there's a fun bet I think about a lot where um, have you ever noticed how in movies everyone's phone number begins with 555? Because mm-hmm. it's, eventually... it's fake and they don't want to use a real number. Exactly. In a and then eventually they ran out of, they started running out of phone numbers. So they decided to make the only fake phone numbers 55501XX. Okay. Uh, so it's only like those 100 numbers that are fair game. <laughs> uh, but there's a bit in that movie where he goes to a video store to try to prove John Schwarzenegger that he's in a movie. Like, I'm going to show you all these Schwarzenegger movies. And it turns out that in this universe, Stallone was in all of them. <laughs> and that's that's kind of funny. Mm. And then like he tries to like get that girl's phone number. He's like, all right, kid, I'll tell you. And she's like, what, what's your phone number? 555. Aha! It's fake. I bet all of the phone numbers in this world start with 555. And they're like, yeah. Well, that would mean there's only like 1,000 people in the phone numbers in the LA area. That's why we have area codes. 
damn it. And I did the math. There's still more people in LA. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There's still way, There's still not enough people in the fucking country. Like that doesn't work. But in any case, yeah, it's a high concept film that I felt didn't do enough with the concept. Um, but to answer your question, I have revisited Last Action Hero since. Mm-hmm. I kind of like it. It it. I wish it had wallowed in its own cleverness more actually because yeah. i think there's so many things in that movie that are neat and go unexplored like one that i really love in that movie we go to um we go to jack what's it what's his name jack slater jack slater is the name of Schwartz- <laughs> jack slater yeah it's the name of schwarzenegger's character we go to jack slater's uh, police precinct and they i didn't even get this joke until i'd seen the movie for like four times because they never really talk about it mm-hmm. Every pair of cops is a mismatched buddy cop. Right. And the best one is, of course, I think it's like a, a particularly attractive lady paired with a cartoon, like in the cartoon show Bonkers. Yeah. It's, um, it's a, a cat in a, a detective's like yeah. trench coat. And that's a really funny concept. And I kind of wish they'd gotten more out of that mm. than just, ah, you're, you're, you're Schwarzenegger. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I mean, know. The, I feel like the, they just don't do enough with it. I mean, this was a time when uh, companies were a lot more stingy about licensing their properties. True. This wouldn't have been a movie where, uh, like, Lucasfilm wouldn't have just sold Darth Vader and have had him, had him running around in the movie. Yeah, on the other hand, a couple of years after this, they did a really good movie called The Indian in the Cupboard. And there was a gag in the Indian in the cupboard. I liked it. But like, there's a gag in the movie where the kid puts all his toys in the cupboard and he opens the cupboard. And he'll come to life. But they're licensed. There's like Darth Vader and a Robocop cameo in there. Uh, So you can do cameos. Little little cameos like that. But these days, you know, we just get vomit like Ready Player One. It's like, how how many references can you spot? What's the point of this? It's just a game. Admittedly, that's the opposite end of that spectrum. That pendulum swung too far the other way. I'll grant you that. I'll totally grant you that. So if it had been made later and, and. the sort of throw throwing open of the doors of licensing had uh, had already occurred. Then we would have had a little bit more of seeing all kinds of movie characters. As it is, we only see uh, uh, death from the Seventh Seal played in the in that movie by Ian McKellen. Weirdly, mm-hmm. uh, he made that movie so yeah. that he could get more comfortable with filmmaking, so he could do Richard the Third. Mm. Yeah, actually, yeah, did a feature film yeah, playing playing death. It's he's fun. He's fun mm. in it. Um, but yeah, but yeah he, he's they, that, they and don't... then there's also a character from a fake movie we saw Jack Slater in, which feels like a bit of a cop out because mm-hmm. we only saw him in like one scene. It wasn't like he's an arch nemesis or anything. Wouldn't it be fun if it's like Nosferatu yeah. and Darth Vader and they all these like, that famous for a movie monsters yeah. were all together. So that that's that's unfortunate, and I think it's one of those movies that like it's how I feel kind of about the movie Time Cop, where the idea is so cool, and what we saw in the movie was they were cheap. Hmm. They didn't have the budget to have Jean-Claude Van Damme roundhouse kick a velociraptor in the Colosseum <laughs> in ancient Rome. That would have been the coolest fucking movie ever. Well, and I think fun. we can all agree on that. Well, go see the movie Double Team instead. <laughs> That's pretty close, and I'll grant you. But my point is this, that the idea is more exciting to a kid, in particular, because your imagination is working in overdrive, than what they were actually willing to put on screen. Hmm. Willing or able. And I think that's true for Last Action Hero. But watching it now, knowing what it is, I, I still think it's a bit of a misfire. But it's got big ideas. It's pretty funny. It, it's okay. I don't. Right. I don't hate it. But I do think it's a it's a missed opportunity. And if anyone ever wanted to revisit it in some way, I would be very eager to watch it because I think there's a lot to be done with it. They didn't get to do. Yeah. Okay. I I I have no beefs with Last Action Hero. Okay. I think it's a fine movie. Uh, I think it's it, it was very much of of uh, malign when it came out. It was a big mm. bomb. It was a huge and, uh, bomb. It came out like the same. Didn't it come out the same summer as last as uh, Jurassic Park? 
It was the next year. It was, it was next year. I think it was 94. It was but, a um, big, big summer. I remember that much. It, it was, it was a big date. summer. It was supposed to be this gigantic hit. It's a big Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, and nobody went to go see it. And it was, yeah. as such, as with most bombs, gained a reputation as being bad. A lot of no. bombs aren't bad. A lot of them are. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, when I finally caught up with it, I didn't really see what was wrong with it. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand why it was the bomb it was. I don't think anybody really did. I've never had a beef with Last Action Hero. It's I think a maybe, perfectly entertaining movie. I think maybe people didn't want Schwarzenegger to get more meta than Gander God and Cop. Mm. Gander God and Cop's a little meta because, oh, isn't it funny that Schwarzenegger's like a doing a kid's image, movie? But yeah. yeah, but you don't want more than that. So basically, to people wanted Schwarzenegger to just be larger than life, and I think calling attention to it. I actually like the bit in Last Action Hero when Schwarzenegger gets to meet fake Schwarzenegger and vice yeah. versa. And fake Schwarzenegger says, I don't like you. You brought me nothing but pain. <laughs> and there's something about that I'm like, yeah, it, it, his, the movies he creates are kind of harrowing worlds of violence and misery, oh. aren't they? And it's sort of like there's a moment where I'm like, that's a fair point, Arnie. It's, I like that. <laughs> I admire your mustache. Take it. It's brought me nothing but misery. <laughs> Um, but that's it. That's it. Thank you for the question, and thank you for and thank you for uh, listening to some of our older stuff. Yeah, it's great. Thank you yeah. for delve, delving backwards. Yeah. And cancel too soon is coming back. It's mm-hmm. I've only I can tell you some of the crap we put up with this last couple of months. Not not from <laughs> not from you, just in our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we really want to get back to it. And it's, yeah, we, it's, we still it's owe you episode two hundred. <laughs> yeah, I know that became a joke, and we're sorry about that. But it's going to happen. Right. Uh, here's a letter from B. Peterson. And, oh. uh, if you recall, and I think I read this letter, uh, B. Peterson had an ambition to write us 100 letters this year. Yeah. And I haven't been reading a lot of them because that's two letters a week. And that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of content. Yeah. Uh, I pre- I kind of want to see them all put together in like a Dear Mr. Henshaw kind of, yeah. kind of YA book. But I, I, I do want yeah. to uh, uh, assure B. Peterson that I've we've, seen we've, them all. We've got them. We've yeah. got them, and, yeah. and, and we've seen them, and we've read them. And it but, means a uh, lot to us. And and we're we're glad for your questions, but yeah, it's I, we I have to spread we had to spread the wealth. And yeah. Also, uh, B. Peterson, you might know B. Peterson because they uh, co-hosted the Quibi episode of Cancel mm-hmm. Too Soon, and we had a your episode of your critically acclaimed with them, which was yeah. really great. We talked about queer cinema, so. Yeah. But yeah. uh, but I did want to read one because uh, we're in the home stretch. This is uh, letter ninety eight of one hundred. Okay, we have to do ninety nine and hundred. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but uh, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, in episode 59 of We've Got Mail, you dedicated half an hour to creating a syllabus for a history of film class off the tops of your heads. As soon as you finished doing so, Bibbs already hated the list of films. I don't blame you. Trying to encapsulate the entirety of film history in just 20 to 30 films is ridiculous, ludicrous, and an impossible feat. Why is it I decided I'd try... Uh, which is why I decided I'd try and fail to do it in 12. There you go. Here are my rules. One film per decade, one film per country, mm. and all films must be set in the era in which they were made. So no, uh, okay. no period pieces. That's a little arbitrary, but okay, right. let's work with that. All my, right. Well, you're reflecting on the present. No, I, I appreciate that. that. I appreciate uh, my, that. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I'd follow those guidelines if I were doing it. But well, let's, but let's, let's work with that. B. Peterson's rules. I'm not. I'm not criticizing. Right. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying I don't know if that's that's required. But right. let's. That's an interesting set of rules. Let's let's right. work with this. Uh, that that could be really fascinating. My goal with these films is not just to tell a story. Uh, not just to tell the story of the evolution of cinema, but also of the world over time. What could okay. go wrong? Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, let's from, find out. <laughs> from 1890s to 1900s, uh, from France, the 2016 documentary Lumiere! Exclamation point, which consists of 108 uh, restored Lumiere shorts and a narration by the director Thierry Ferreau explaining their history and significance. Nice. Right. Love it. I haven't a- seen that, but that, that sounds like a great idea. I love it. Uh, from the 10s. From Russia, the 1917 tragedy, The Dying Swan, directed by Yevgeny Bauer. I don't oh, know The Dying Swan. I think I saw that in film school. Okay. Yeah. 
1920s from the United States, the 1920 drama Within Our Gates, directed by Oscar Michaud. Oh, I haven't seen that one. No, I haven't seen that one either. And you and you're, uh, and you only pick one per country, so you're using a so, USA real fast. Well, we're over I just think it's interesting yeah. that we're just getting out of the way, it's especially with a film that mm-hmm. not everyone's heard of. That's really cool. Okay, moving on. Uh, 1930s, Germany, M, directed yeah. by Fritz Lang. Great, great pick. Also playing with sound as it's moving into the, there you go. the form. Uh, yeah, that's great. Love it. Uh, 1940s from uh, the United Kingdom, the 1949 mystery film The Third Man. Yay! By Reed. One of my favorite films. Love The Third Man. Great yep. music. Uh, from the 1950s, from Japan, 1954 science fiction film Gojira. Nice. By Ishiro Honda. That's a good pick. I like that. Yeah. I like yeah. that we put in a monster movie. That's great. Mm. 1960s from Sweden, the 1966 experimental drama Persona. Just talking about there that. There you go. By Mark Bergman. 1970s from Italy, the 1977 horror film Suspiria, directed by Dario Argento. Bold choice. Uh, 1980s from Hong Kong, the 1985 action film Police Story, directed by Jackie Chan. That's a great movie. I've not seen that oh, one. Oh, you've never seen that one? No, oh, it's my, so cool. My, uh, Unfortunately, my uh, martial arts uh, education is a little little hazy. We should, we should, oh God, now I want to do a martial arts podcast with you. <laughs> it's just one, it's like we just do a different kung fu movie every single, oh, that'd be cool. I, I started to, I, I watched several martial arts films uh, in, sure in the 90s when yeah. uh, there was the sort of big. Rumble in the Bronx, boom. And, well, Rumble yeah. in the Bronx, but uh, especially a big sort of retro 70s uh, aesthetic wave that was going through mm-hmm. thanks to a lot of retro filmmakers. Tarantino, uh, Tarantino you know, in particular, yeah. and uh, I watched a lot of them back then, and I found, found them perfectly entertaining. I watched John Woo films that were coming mm-hmm. out at the time. Uh, I tried to go back in like my forties, and they just made me sad. I just didn't want to watch those movies anymore. It made me which feel ones, like which ones were you like? Um, which ones? Uh, what was we we watched a John Woo film for the podcast? It was hard boiled. It was hard boiled. Yeah, hard, that, bo- I, hard boiled is a balletic and spectacular action uh-huh. movie. And it made me unbelievably depressed for well, reasons it, I couldn't really put my no, finger on. I think on. it's fair to say that John Woo couldn't, and I know we're digressing, but I think it's fair to say that John Woo can, without even thinking about it, or maybe intentionally, who can say, uh, sidestep into the glorification of violence in some of his yeah. movies. And I can appreciate you finding that oppressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think, however, that there's a lot of really, that's not really a Kung Fu film, though. Oh, that's a, that's a Hong Kong yeah. action movie, and there's a lot of overlap, but that's not the same thing. Uh, kung fu films aren't necessarily about that and there are some kung fu films that are very violent but there's also a lot that are funny mm-hmm. there's a lot that are romantic and there's a lot that have a lot to say about politics and stuff i think i think with a with a proper like it, this is this actually goes back to an earlier thing mm-hmm. um kung fu movies are the kind of thing that it's easy to appreciate superficially because there's so much obvious entertainment value but to actually understand what's going on in them a certain amount of introduction is really useful yeah, to understand what was going on in the industry, some of the well, Chinese, cultural Chinese things, culture, yeah. Chinese culture, Chinese history. A lot of them are set in, in historical periods, uh, understanding the politics of those periods, which would have been very well known to everybody watching them in the area at the time. Mm-hmm. It would help. Yeah. Anyway, um, I digress. Anyway, we're, we're into the 1990s. Do you think yeah. you can guess what the countries we've... Uh, had films I'm from. trying to think. I'm trying to think what we haven't done yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we have. Have we done France? Yes, we have done France. What was yeah, France? Uh, uh, from from France was. Uh, bu- 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 oh no, we haven't done. Fr- did we do? France? I don't think we did uh, France. Russia, the United States. Oh, Lumiere. They were the first. Oh, duh. Yeah. Pfft, duh. Okay. Uh, let's see. What haven't we done yet? We haven't done Australia. 
Okay. Um, 90s film from Australia. I don't know. It was Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Uh, it was uh, All About My Mother from Spain. Uh, directed right. by Pedro Almodovar and uh, the 2000s from Mexico. That, those, are, those, would be, those would be a good double feature. Yeah, 2000s know. from Mexico, the 2000 road trip movie Y Tu Mama, e Mama Tambien, Tambien yeah, by Alfonso okay. Cuaron. And uh, 2010s from Kenya, the 2018 romance Rafiki. Directed by Wanuri Kahiu. I didn't see that one. I didn't that's see a, Rafiki. That's, that's, a, um, that's, a, that's, that's a pretty good list, actually. That's a really good... I like the international yeah, I like, approach. I, like uh, that. I, th- I think because that was that was our big flaw with our list is that we felt it could have been more representative of yeah, we, different we were, nations. We we leaned a little bit more American because that's kind of where our film education well, lies. We were looking at it from perspective of the evolution of the language of the art form, mm. and on that note, it's very easy to use a lot of Western films because a lot of them were um, like. Well, they're, they're, what what happens? A lot of them is, popularized a lot of those things, like widescreen and sound, etc. Right, uh, and they popularize those things, and also they are uh, as we are from the United States, we tend to gravitate towards the films from our own country. Also true, and, undeniable. And film schools do this as well. So even as we are learning about cinema, we're getting a steady diet of our own country. Yeah. So that that's kind of where our minds sort of fell yeah. back on, and mm-hmm. I think we both immediately regretted it. Yeah, uh, we, we we did it kind of without thinking. We tried, but we mm-hmm. didn't do a good enough job. And it's funny, when I was at UCLA, we actually did have a very, a relatively varied mm-hmm. uh, uh, perspective, and we actually were required to take classes on films from other cultures. Yeah. Like, that was really, that was like, you had to do I think, like at least two or three in a year. Uh, just to even to, graduate so yeah, i got yeah. to take a, a japanese cinema course when i was in yeah. college and we're watching stuff like osaka elegy and yeah. movies that you wouldn't necessarily cover in an ordinary quote yeah. ordinary film class i took a history uh, of european cinema and i took a great course by a professor named uh toshoma gabriel who i don't think is sadly i don't think he's with us anymore mm-hmm. Uh, but he was an incredible film critic and he did a film uh, something called film and social change mm-hmm which was about a sort of cultural evolution through cinema, um, but all over the world. And oh. there are films, and I wish I had that syllabus, man. Some of those movies are not even available. Uh, I just saw some incredible films from everywhere, and yeah, uh, I, mean, I just I don't even remember all their names anymore. There was a really great crash course yeah, in world uh, cinema. The uh, the a uh, big un- unfortunate thing that I think we've finally outgrown mm. because you know because blockbuster is shuttered now, so we don't necessarily have such stringent ideas of genre. Uh, oh, in terms and, of like everything needs to go in one particular exactly. Place. One needs to yeah. you need to categorize. You have to put them somewhere in the video store. So yeah, you so need to know what a genre. It's is. either a drama or yeah. a comedy. I'm sorry, the graduate. We have to pick one. That yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, unfortunately, and a lot of uh, American audiences, United States audiences, feel this way. Foreign was a genre. Yeah. Foreign language. They didn't even, not even international cinema. I think the Oscars helped perpetuate Exactly, like foreign language cinema, cinema from another. They they can't say, I I think in this last one they said international feature. They did did officially change it the last year or two. Which, you know, thank goodness. Yeah, uh, even that's still kind of arbitrary because again, Parasite can win Best Picture, so... Also, like just any any movie from outside the United States well, that is and such no, a no actually <laughs> yeah and actually no because the thing is is that the actual rules for the Oscars anyway mm. in terms of what qualifies as international cinema are weirdly stringent. There's a movie that uh, I forget what it was. There's a movie that is ineligible for that award this year because they decided it has too much English in it. Yeah, like a certain percentage has to yeah, be in, there, in in a language other than English. There was a, there was a movie from a couple of years ago that wasn't allowed in because it was in English, and I'm like that. They were like, "That's the language of our country." Mm. So, 
this is the only category you we could get in and we can't do it. Also, you have to be the official film selected by your country for the Academy Awards. Right. You can't be any movie mm. from anywhere in the world at any time. It's it's a category that clearly exists to highlight world cinema, but but they're, they're not letting in a lot of world cinema. It's, are it's they? bizarre, and I think we we need to dramatically rethink it. And I don't know the solution because, unfortunately, I'm not sure who has the time to watch every single movie from every country every single year. Yeah, well, there is a practical consideration, but there's got to be a better way to do it. Uh, make those films more available to Academy voters. They that's, should that's, be. Well, that's obviously, the first, that's true. First uh, requirement. There. Obviously, that's true. Yeah. But like when you consider, theoretically, anyway, there's a movie from every single country in the world submitted every single year. That's not strictly true, mm. but theoretically, if it were, even that's a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you're trying to watch other stuff, too. Right. Like, it's, it's a lot. I appreciate that. Anyway, so there's uh, got to be a better way. Anyway, B. Peterson concludes with, uh, obviously this list Im- uh, omits a vast majority of film history and cinematic mm-hmm. perspectives, but all the same, I think it's all right for what it is. Is this list any good? Would you like Would you like to take a second crack at your own syllabus? Oh. Uh, uh, thank you and see you in the next one, B. Peterson. Okay. Uh, t- two questions. Is that list any good? Yeah, actually that's a great list. That's a good I, list, yeah. And I think, uh, even though there's a few films on there I cannot personally vouch for because I haven't seen them, uh, I think that if you were looking for a crash course in world cinema and the history of world cinema, you could do a lot worse. Mm. Uh, so, and I and I don't mean that in like as a backhanded compliment. I mean like that's a good list. Mm. So, if anyone wants to take B. Peterson up on that list and maybe watch those movies, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, especially if you haven't seen them. Um, but um, well, as we're as we're taking the another you know, crack at the list, not right now. No, yeah, <laughs> that took it, long it, enough. The it, first it would take time. us We're too long, and I, th- I think uh, yeah. our our first instinct. I was thinking about this because I, we were just sort of spitballing. We weren't really mm. like coming up with any kind of solid ideas. So I feel like as just a, a list of good films to recommend, it might work. But yeah, I recommend actual, all those movies as an actual yes, course, maybe not. Uh, and yeah. I think God, you that would, would kill to teach a course in film. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I, I spend more time in the syllabus than that. A, well, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd, I'd agonize over it for a year. But yeah. uh, I think you and I, like our first instinct was to trace chronologically the evolution of cinema. Yeah. And that's also what B. Peterson did. We're doing it chronologically. Yeah. Um, Somewhat different focus, but mm. the general gist is true, yeah. I am a big proponent of the idea of programming as criticism. Agreed. You can put two films together that can reflect on one another. They can come from vastly different parts of the world. Yeah. They can be uh, made at vastly different times, but they can be about maybe similar types of things. Mm-hmm. And they all inform of a sudden, on each other. Yeah. You get this broader perspective as to what cin- like different cinema can approach a uh, same topic from far different perspectives in a in a similar way, or just have different perspectives on the I, same. I love it. Topic. I, I agree entirely. Uh, so I would think a more effective syllabus. Rather than giving you kind of the nuts and bolts of film structure, which is actually a lot more commonly known now, it's just a broader it's, part of it's the information, conversation. It's information that's available. It's yeah. yeah I, I mean, the whole like notion of like show don't tell and uh, axis of action. All these I, I will these say, terms are actually like really well known. I will say that a lot of people are aware of them without being consciously aware of them, mm-hmm. and a lot of my own cinema education was. Uh, teaching the vernacular in which to speak these things. Mm. Uh, yeah, I understand the gist of that, but I didn't actually understand that there was a theory behind it, and here's what's no, behind the theory, and that makes it easier to have the conversation and also impart that information to others. That's important, but mm. you're right. There is a baseline literacy, I think, 
in cinema mm. that a lot of people have just from watching a ton of movies and TV. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think a, a more effective syllabus would be something that pairs two different movies week per week. Are you pitching the two shot again? I'm not. <laughs> That was the idea behind the two shots. It was shot, actually though, it was it was to find you know, disparate a, a, films a, a, that complement each other, a, a bad or maligned film, and get a good film to complement it and yeah. bring them both up. In uh, yeah. as, as a result, and I think I I, I don't want to like pitch any uh, like persona and performance. Uh, well, would well, be a good one to play mm-hmm. play well, back I'll, to back. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell mm. you. I'll we'll, we'll take it from the two mm. shot. And I think about this one all the time. Actually, I think this is the best one we ever did. Okay, no, that's not true. Rules of the Game and Caddyshack 2 was the best one. <laughs> and I stand by that episode, and I love that episode, and I stand by Caddyshack 2. I don't care what the director of Caddyshack 2 told us. The, the director wrote, of Caddyshack 2 wrote in. <laughs> to say that we're wrong that, and it's a bad movie. The, it's like Because we, we were defending Caddyshack 2. So this is better than the original. There's actually some interesting class ideas in here. There's some good characters. And the director wrote it and said, you guys are wrong. It's this, not a good film. This is crap. I put no thought into this thing. <laughs> That's one of the highlights of my podcast, yeah. career in uh, But I think the best one we ever did was Bicycle Thieves, the Italian, <laughs> the Italian neorealist mm. classic Bicycle Thieves, and Jingle All the Way, the broad, comedic Arnold Schwarzenegger Christmas movie about capitalism, basically. Mm. And they don't seem like they go together until you watch them back to back and you realize they're the same fucking movie. And mm. one of them is this broad, sensationalist, feel-good parable about Americana family values. And consumerism. Consumerism. Specifically consumerism. And how consumerism can make you happy and how... Uh, if And and, and that's a big part of it, actually. You know, some people's lives are improved by just getting that toy. Um, And then you see Bicycle Thieves, which is about how uh, people who are poor might have a very similar adventure from a very different perspective mm. because it's not about appeasing my son with a product and the only, sure he he product yeah, and it's not, the only reason he needs that product is because I'm too busy being a capitalist to give him the love and care that he needs. It's about if I don't have this product, I cannot make money and take care of my family and I lose my identity as a human being. Mm. And... Also, the stripped-down neorealist style was a direct reaction to the phoniness of filmmaking, particularly in the World War II propaganda era. But regardless, the phoniness of cinema, this broad, glitzy, mm. wouldn't you? Art wouldn't movie. we all be better if we had fancy white telephones kind of thing? The, um, the, the, the fantasy of the artificial. Yeah, and neorealism was a direct rebuke of the fantasy worlds that cinema kept trying to shove down our throat and you realize that hollywood took that neorealist premise whether they did it consciously or unconsciously who can say but they took the same basic narrative concept and they added all the bullshit back in Mm -hmm. and i think you could actually learn a lot about the american hollywood studio approach to filmmaking and also neorealism by putting those two films back to back yeah, yeah. I so think it's a great double feature. That's, that, that's my prime example. That that would be uh, my my new view of a syllabus. I love so that. Th- things that that link thematically, learning a little bit more, yeah, about different approaches to the art yeah. than mere evolution of the structure, which is the general way that that sort of thing is done. I'm sold actually. Yeah. I would love to, I would love to take that class. Mm. Is that, the, is that your ideal class? If you could teach class in cinema, I, that, that I class? think that's, that, that would be my thing. I and, love and, it. And I try, and I'd get, you know, the classics in there, but 
I feel like curating is going to be a much more effective teaching tool mm-hmm. than mere well, chronology or names. Well, and that's something that I, that's why I took mm-hmm. the syllabus so seriously mm-hmm. is because I know that the films that you choose to show people to educate them in cinema or whatever you're trying to teach them matter. Yeah. You can't just pick any movie. It's actually, they have, it helps if they play off of each other. It helps if they work together in mm-hmm. some respect. Uh, and but the thing is that you also have to factor in things like how long is the class, how much, oh, how, much the, how much, how much can you, how much can you, are the films that you're asking them to watch outside of class readily available? There's mm. a lot of thought that needs to go into that kind of syllabus. Um, if anyone knows or is working at a small town liberal arts college that is looking for <laughs> film professors, <laughs> preferably two of them. Mm. Uh, that we could move to. I promise we would also go to work solving whatever cozy mysteries uh, are going on in your small liberal arts college town. Hmm. All right, I don't. I can't promise we'll be any good at solving the mysteries, but we will try <laughs> in a very murder she wrote fashion, and I will try to relate them all to film in some. That's my fantasy. I've been wanting to do that for a while. There, there yeah. is a, a, another brief <laughs> aside. Um, Look up an author named Lauren Esselman, yeah. and Lauren Esselman has written. Uh, suddenly, there's only I think only two books in the series so far. Uh-huh. But the idea was uh, there's a detective who uh, is a film archivist. Yeah, and, and our film and archivists tra- are very much like detectives. They have to mm. travel around the world trying yeah, to so find lost prints of things. And the idea is they're going to track down uh, uh, like artifacts and prints that are that yeah. are missing and will solve some larger like mystery in the first book and actually you, you gave it to me and mm. i actually feel bad because I, I haven't finished it it's been on my nightstand for a oh, while shit, but it has okay. a great setup uh is uh, there's like an old movie theater in los angeles that's going to be torn down he's brought in to sort of see if there's anything worth recovering mm. and there's a hidden room like that's been like bricked up mm. and in that room is possibly the director's cut of greed which is one of the holy grails of film mm. history. Eric von Stroheim's original cut is reportedly nine hours long. Yeah. And the, the, the longest we... surviving edition, with, which was supplemented with like stills, is only four hours right now. Yeah, so we're missing like more than half of that movie. Mm. Uh, so inside that walled-up room, there is possibly the complete director's cut of Greed, also a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great setup, especially if you're a film nerd. Anyway, I digress. We would love to work at your liberal arts college. Please contact us. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. I am not kidding. Okay, moving on. Uh, here's a letter I need f- stability. I'm almost 40. All right. <laughs> I'm 42. How do you think? I got a You're kid. also almost 40. Yeah. You're just on the other end. I'm almost. <laughs> if, if almost. I'm tra- if I'm traveling backwards like in Tenet, it's close. I'm almost 40. <laughs> You're clo- okay, anyway. Uh, this is a letter from Piotr. Hello, Piotr. Hello. Uh, dear Mr. McCool and Mr. Bibiani, I have just listened to your mail episode with M. Lapis de Silva and ah. had to respond immediately. I try to be short. I'll try to be short, but this email is fairly long-winded. Uh, it's all right. It happens. Uh, num- there's just three points here. Number one, I hate, especially in films, when a woman is referred to as X's beautiful wife, or even worse, when a male character refers to his spouse as, quote, my beautiful wife. Seriously, is that the only feature a man can come up with when mm. talking about his partner? Unfortunately, I've also heard this in multiple podcasts when the hosts are talking about their co-hosts or off-air spouses. I believe that your guest was not referred to as your beautiful wife. What I remember from the introduction was that Ms. Lapis de Silva works in the creative business and is an author. I congratulate you on this, which apparently and unfortunately is quite a feat. I, I, I hate that that bar, that, that's considered a bar to be crossed. Yeah. That should be pretty pretty straightforward. Mm. But for the record, she is lovely. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I, am, I, am, I am trying to not be a part of that mm. problem. Of, yeah. yeah, I think that's a problem. I agree with uh, that. Yeah. In, in, in my 
in my late twenties, I, I realized rather embarrassed, uh, embarrassingly that I was still writing reviews where I described how good looking people were. Yeah. Like I talked about their looks a lot and yeah. uh, even when it wasn't significant to the plot, it's just, yeah. and, and, and it was an like, observation. He, he or she is a total babe. It's like, why, why am I doing that? I don't have to be horny in my review. Yeah. I can be horny it, by it, myself. It, and yeah, uh, what's, 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 so it, yeah, exactly. and, and I realized it was like this objectification, a lot of sexist language mm-hmm. that I didn't realize I was using. Well, and, that, was, and that's been the language used in, in even, serious film criticism for a very oh, yeah. long I was, time. I, I so was like, actually like take, taking cues that. from all the reviews I was yeah, reading. I think Ebert's so. done that. So like, yeah. Oh yeah. And Ebert did it all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I was really embarrassed to, uh, to discover that I was using that language. Yeah. And so I had to make a conscious effort to stop, but I, I, and I was late. I was like 28 when I realized I was doing that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's so embarrassing, but you like, can you can go back got, and read got... some reviews from like, oh. not, not so far hence that I'm completely embarrassed about. Just please don't, um, please don't read the old all right. uh, po- Point number two. I think yeah. there is absolutely is a canon. Okay. Uh, we were talking about the Western canon of literature on, on that podcast. Mm. And Michelle um, believed that there isn't, or at least that there shouldn't be. No, and, and no. I, I believe that there is, but it's every canon in one. Like it's, okay. it, which is essentially useless because that means it's every book. And uh, I believe but, that there is a baseline that we can expect yeah. people to be sort of at least familiar mm. with. But beyond that, I don't think it's yeah, relevant. I, but... Uh, but uh, Piotr here says, I think there absolutely is a canon that a person living in a certain cultural region needs to be familiar with to be considered well-read, whether it's literature, music, visual arts, film, and probably video games. Uh, it's a bag of references without which our perception of other works of art is crippled. Uh, for the sake of the argument, a European-slash-American citizen would have an extremely difficult time enjoying their local literature, film, or architecture if they did not at least know the cliff notes of the Iliad, uh, the Gospel, or one or two Shakespeare plays. Mm. Uh you can give up after the third volume of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, uh, never read Gunter Grass's The Tin Drum to the end, or sleep through large portions of Swan Lake, The Magic Flute, or Rossini's William Tell. However, it's good to know who Javert is, mm-hmm. or that the William Tell overture is not the tune from The Lone Ranger. And if you don't, <laughs> and if you don't enjoy medieval Italian poetry or Russian novelists, pff, who doesn't? Uh, <laughs> at least have a grounded reason for it. You should try. Uh, and that's that's a good point. Uh, yeah, if that's, that's kind of my point. A lot point. of these things yeah. do affect the culture we live in. They yeah. are our culture. And, and it's, yeah. it's useful to know where the things, you know, and the, the basic societal beliefs that you share all came from somewhere. And and that's, that was that that's, I, I put it a little differently and I don't agree with every mm. single point in that, but essentially that's what I, my yeah, point, yeah, I yeah. think there is a certain baseline of literature and that goes for music and film and mm. all, all the arts that I think people should at least be reasonably expected to be familiar with. It doesn't mean you've gotten to everything, mm. but it should be like if you bring up, I don't know, To Kill a Mockingbird mm. or I don't know, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings or something. Mm. Like one of these like sort of benchmark yeah. literary works. At least I think a lot of people should have a sort of like, oh, I know that. Mm. Yeah, either I've read it or I know enough about it to know why it's significant. Yeah. yeah. At least one or the other. Preferably mm. you've read it. But... Regardless, I think that's my general point. And I think mm. that's why we have things like required reading lists at schools. Yeah. You know? Well, and that's, and the, the idea is that the Western canon is, it's essentially just a, a very broad reading list. Basically. And uh, yeah. if, if all you're looking for is a reading list, why the hell not do the classics that you've always heard about in school and well, other books as well? Just well, read because, them all. Because a lot of those classics mm. are 
decided yeah. to have been classics by mm. people who maybe don't have a broad enough perspective to appreciate but, yeah. other works. But, but you can yeah. read it and decide for yourself now. And, I know. I'm just saying you should also consider think, uh... if, if if here's what I'm going to say. If the list of canon of canon books, canonical books, the books you reach required to read. Mm. If you're looking at that list and you're finding out that it's mostly straight white male dudes, uh. Add another list to that. Yeah, no, don't make, don't limit yourself to that because you're gonna you're gonna spend list, a but... lot of your time focusing on p- one particular perspective or one sort of yeah, general true. perspective, and that's not a good history of art. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, that that said, I wouldn't I wouldn't begrudge anybody reading Moby Dick. Of course not. Yeah. No, I'm not <laughs> in, in a vacuum and certainly individually. Mm. Yeah, but if you're only reading. Mm. A certain type of author, especially or like just from the age of the novel, like yeah. in, in the mid eighteen hundreds. Yeah, you're you are missing out on a big chunk mm. of history, and I think, and a big chunk of art. Mm. And I think the beauty of art is that it shows us other people's perspectives. So you should have as many other perspectives as possible, mm. and so you should try to read art from people from all walks of life. Yeah. Uh, and point number three. Uh, yes. Speaking of Russian novelists, a question. I've heard film critics speak quite dismissively about Joe Wright's Anna Karenina. Mm. Uh, me and my wife enjoy the performances, the pacing, and the gimmick. The fact that some scenes are shot as if they happen on the theater stage. Yeah. The characters walk through a theater background, or some theaters uh, watch others on the stage. And the added value of English-speaking actors pronouncing Russian pet names. <laughs> uh, can you give your two cents uh, worth on the film, or why it, why it received such a low critical assessment? Mm. Thank you for your excellent work. Uh, while talking to my brilliant wife, I refer to you as the podcast. Podcasters I like to listen to the most. Oh, oh my yeah, that's really kind of you. Kind Thank regards, you. Piotr. Um, so the movie uh, he's referring to is a 2000, I have to look up the year, it's a 2012, 2012 yeah. uh, um, adaptation of Leo Tolstoy's uh, novel uh, about a woman in a train. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> about a woman who was so in love with a train, it's, she had to hug it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a tragic historical romance. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, it's been adapted quite a few times before. I think mm. one with Ing- Ingrid Bergman, right? Am I, I confusing that with something else? No, there was one with Vivian Lee, which is really quite bad. I think I'm confusing. Uh, I think I might be confusing. I think I might be thinking of. I'm all the different Anna Karenina movies because there's think, a lot of them. I think I'm probably confusing that with. Uh, I think she did Anastasia. Was Ingrid Bergman? There, there is that's, an Anastasia. That's what I'm Bergman, thinking of. That doesn't right. mean she didn't also do Anna Karenina, but I think that's what I'm thinking of. Um, anyway, Joe Wright. A uh, filmmaker who, boy, is he hit and miss. Like, he did a really, really good adaptation of Pride and Prejudice with Keira oh. Knightley. Um, he did a really bad Peter Pan movie called Pan. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I like Pan. I know, right? but you're... you're, you're... I, I didn't like it the first time. Speaking of reconsidering movies, I, I re-watched it. And I'm like, this one is like... This is like... Ten times better than that piece of crap hook that everybody is oh, about. Oh, well, I think it's kind of a lateral move, but whatever. <laughs> but, um, well, I mean... It's better, but yeah, Hook, anyway. Hook is quite bad. Anyway, I did Atonement, uh, which I have mixed feelings about. Great score, though. And uh, yeah, he. Uh, turned, oh, gosh, you, there's so many adaptations of Anna Karenina. Oh, it's, yeah, it's huge. It's a very um, popular book. 11, 14, 15, 18, 27, 35, 48 was the one with Vivian Lee. Uh, okay. The 35 one was with Greta Garbo. That's probably the one you were thinking that of. That might be the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, uh, 53, a Russian film. Uh, 67 Russian film, uh, 1977 10-episode BBC miniseries, yep. um, the 1975 oh, film put on by the Bolshoi Ballet, the 1985 film with Jacqueline Bissett, the 1997 film uh, directed by Bernard Rose, the guy who did Candyman. Oh, oh, um, I didn't. I don't think I saw that one. Who was in that? Uh, Sophie Marceau played Anna Karenina in that one. Oh, I remember when that came out. Yeah, I yeah. totally forgot about and that. Sean, I, I remember... I, Sean I, Bean was... Uh, um, 
I don't think I think it was Levin in there. No, I actually uh, do remember when that came out because I knew a lot of people in my high school saw that, but for some reason I missed it. That's weird. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, ninety-seven, two thousand. There was another British miniseries, uh, the twenty twelve film, uh, and there's um, Anna Karenina colon Vronsky's story, <laughs> another Russian film. Okay, from from another perspective, perhaps. Yeah. Um, Okay, so Anna Karenina. Uh, it's a great book. I read it in high school. Um, mm. it, it it reads real well. I really like that one. Yeah. Um, it's been, I haven't revisited it since. But um, yeah, Joe Wright did a version of Anna Karenina. It was supposed to be this big, lavish uh, production. And then if memory serves, I interviewed uh, the DP for this. And uh, memory serves, they ran out of money. <laughs> they yeah. were supposed to do something real so that's big. That's why they had to do those theater things. So yeah, so they ended up rather than shutter the production, they decided to get like clever and meta with it and try to make it look like it's all a big like theatrical production. And some of the sets are realistic, mm-hmm. and some of them are highly artificial. And I don't. My problem with it isn't that it's bad. I don't think all the performances are equally good. But mm-hmm. my problem isn't that the movie is a bad, particularly bad Anna Karenina. I don't think my problem isn't how it looks. I think it looks neat, actually. My problem is that the look doesn't feel motivated by anything other than circumstance. Yeah. It feels like they did it to be neat. And it is neat. I just don't think it actually helps the narrative any. Uh, my my big issue with the twenty twelve Anna Karenina is Vronsky and Anna. Mm. Uh, Anna Karenina is played by Kira Knightley. She was really good in Pride and Prejudice. She was in mm. Atonement. I think she was yeah. good in that movie too. Uh, have you ever uh, seen but, Dangerous Method? She's amazing in that movie. She's, uh, she really, I, she should have been nominated for an Oscar, but I don't think she was. Uh, for that's that one. that's the Cronenberg film. Yeah, she's great the, in that. I think it's I think it's her best performance. Yeah, with uh, Jung and Freud. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we had uh, Kira Knightley was she she played Anna in this really kind of. I understand Anna's sort of a melancholy character, but she was just, like, broody in this really dull kind of way. I don't think she brought any personality to the role. Hmm. And if I recall, Vronsky was, um, like, handsome McBratty boy. What's his name? Oh, uh, was Uh, it, um... Ah, that one dude. You know that one dude. He was in that thing. (laughs) Aaron Taylor Johnson. Yeah, it was a kick-ass. Aaron Taylor Johnson, yeah. Yeah, Aaron Taylor Johnson. Yeah, he was Vronsky. Um... And he was a really, I, and, yeah. and again, I understand Vronsky's sort of this, uh, a little bit of a shallow character, but mm-hmm. he was just a dick in this version. <laughs> All oh, this I stuff forgot with, Alicia Vikander was in that movie. Yeah, Karen Delevingne is in it. I There's a lot of like really interesting actors I didn't know who Alicia Vikander was, I think, when I saw this movie. Yeah. So. I, I liked all the stuff with Levin, uh, the whole uh, mm-hmm. part where he's like reaping the fields and that, mm-hmm. that, that part I thought, was I think really Jude Law is actually really good in that movie. And Jude Law is good Jude as well. Jude Law is excellent in that film. But... Anna, Anna and Vronsky uh, just are not interesting people to watch. And yeah, when mm-hmm. you can see it straining against its budget, and especially if you watch the movie after you've read the book, mm-hmm. it feels like such this shortened, truncated classroom version of it. And I think a lot of critics were responding to that, that it felt kind of rushed and not like a complete, wholly formed yeah. idea of a movie. Yeah, if they maybe had a little bit more time to think out how that artificiality would work maybe what, what it, it was supposed to comment on the text and yeah exactly that you could totally do that but mm-hmm. I, yeah it just doesn't but it's neat though and i do appreciate like getting on board with the sort of visual novelty of the film i think mm-hmm. that's perfectly reasonable it's not a bad anna karenina but it feels a bit like even though it's obviously very complicated it feels like a slapdash anna karenina because all of that ingenuity i just don't think it adds to much however 
that's a movie I would happily revisit someday. Okay. I would actually kind of I don't I'm not going to rewatch every single Anna Karenina. I don't have the time. But like yeah. it would be kind of fun. <laughs> if, I were, to, if I were 25 then yeah. I'd definitely hunker down. It would be cool things, to watch like yeah. the Garbo version and the Vivian Lee version mm-hmm. and the Kira Knightley version and I guess maybe the Sophie Marceau version at least. The Vivian Lee version sucks. Does it? It's so bad. Who plays Vronsky? Uh, let me look that up. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just and again, this was another issue of like yeah. not not bringing a lot of interesting things to the role of Anna. Mm. You'd think Vivian Lee could do it. Yeah, Vivian Lee's an she, amazing she, yeah, actor. She, she's she's really great. She's got a lot of energy, yeah. just not in this one. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, because that one came out in '48, so yeah. a lot of you notice that she's too old for the role. And, yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's that's she's a little old for that role. Yeah, yeah granted. Um, Oh, yeah, it was, see, it was directed by Julien de Vivier. Uh, uh, don't know them. <laughs> Julien de Vivier. Also, <laughs> did, oh, uh, 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 did Pepe Lamoco? Oh yeah, that's yeah. a that's a yeah. that's a good director. Um, Count Vronsky was played by an actor named Kieran Moore, and I don't know Kieran. Oh, Moore. I know Kieran Moore. I know yeah. Kieran Moore. It's from... an Irish film actor. Yeah, I know. I know him from something. I know that name. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know him from something that's driving me nuts. Oh, well. Um, I'm, like, I'm looking at Kieran Moore's uh, filmography on my telephone right now. Yeah. Which explains all these things. He pauses. was in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. That's what he I He was. From. Okay. That's <laughs> what I Darby O'Gill and the Little oh, People. Oh, and he was in the 300 Spartans, which I mm. remembered kind of liking, but it's not great. Um, anyway. I was in Day of the Triffids. Neat. Okay. So, uh, we could do a whole podcast. That's just us looking over someone's IMDb oh, page look, and going, you, neat. Look at that. that <laughs> was, that's I have no, cool. That's I cool have too. nothing to add about it, but he was in a movie called Dr. Blood's Coffin, and that's a fun name. <laughs> that's a fun name for a movie. We could riff on that for five minutes. All right. That is it for Critically Acclaimed uh, We've Got Mail podcast this week. So thank you, everybody, for writing in. Uh, we hope, uh, you, again, it's the end of December. It's a holiday season. We hope you're having a happy holiday. We hope you're having a safe holiday. Whether you are actually celebrating a holiday or just getting some time off work, I hope. Mm-hmm. Um, or even if you're one of the people who have to work through the season, um, we just hope that you're that you're taking care of yourself and you're taking care of your family and that they're taking care of you. And we're all being safe and responsible right now. There's light at the end of the tunnel, so hopefully everything's going to work out. But, you know, right now, times are pretty crap. So... Um, it really means a lot to us that you would spend your time listening to us and you would spend your time writing in. If you want to write in to a future episode of We've Got Mail, uh, the email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We would love to hear from you. Again, sorry we can't get to everyone's emails. We could do nothing but and mm-hmm. still have like a podcast for every day of the week. So, mm-hmm. But we try. Um, and uh, of course, you can always follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. If you want more exclusive content, you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have podcasts for Star Trek. We have podcasts for Batman. We have an upcoming podcast. I'm still editing it. It actually got a little bit more complicated than I thought, but I'm going to have it out before Christmas. We have an episode of Not on Disney Plus featuring Alonzo Duralde from Linoleum Knife. Uh, about the classic Jim Henson uh, Christmas special, The Christmas Toy, uh, which is one of my personal favorites. It's on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend you check it out uh, if you haven't seen it already or if you have. Um, And um, yeah, there's a bunch of great stuff. And we just want to give a very special shout out to every single one of our patrons without whom we wouldn't be able 
do this. I don't know what I would be doing, but I wouldn't be much. Hmm. Just sort of cowering in a corner somewhere, just <laughs> muttering about cinema. Like laying under a big blanket, moaning softly and saying, uh, uh, raise her head. Uh, uh, persona. <laughs> White House Down was better than Olympus Has Fallen. No one believes me. <laughs> Doctor looking in through a little window like he's still on about Olympus Has Fallen. When will he learn? <laughs> the, the world made their selection. Yeah. Has Fallen was the one they wanted. Is he still giving Geostorm good reviews? Fool. <laughs> Geostorm is enjoyable. Geostorm is very enjoyable. Um, anyway, Notice I, I didn't say good. <laughs> no, I, but I give it a positive review for entertainment value. Yeah, um, anyway, I digress. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we think you're all wonderful, and we're really grateful for your time. So, uh, again, have a happy holiday season, and uh, sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Bye.